0: Every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those are words that are probably familiar to you. They come from uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 9 and 11. I would encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn there, Philippians 2, Verse 9, my goal today is to investigate this commonly known passage of Scripture so that we would apply it with uncommon conviction and joy. According to chapter 1 of this epistle, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi while a prisoner in Rome. He was imprisoned for proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The great imperial power of Rome was employed to stop him, but he, as he testifies in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, his imprisonment didn't exactly stop him. He writes Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress. Of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. You see, Paul knew that his Lord and Savior was sovereign even over the human empire that currently held him in bondage. And he continued proclaiming the gospel of repentance, even to his captors. And after reminding the Philippian church in this letter what Jesus had done for them through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he said in chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." That term, Lord, is often used very casually today, even by those who are not truly Christians. For example, they might say, Good Lord! right, Or, Oh my Lord! Or they might say, Lord knows how many times I've such and such. Or even the phrase, Praise the Lord is often used quite casually. In Exodus 20, verse 7, we read of the third of the Ten Commandments, which says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now that word vain means empty or meaningless. Have you been guilty of using the name of the Lord or even the title, Lord, lightly? More importantly, are you treating his lordship lightly by the way that you live? My outline this morning has three parts. First, we'll look at the extent of Christ's lordship, according to this passage here in Philippians 2. Then we'll look at an explanation of Christ's lordship drawing from the rest of scripture. And then thirdly, we'll look at the experience of Christ's lordship. How do we apply that to our lives? So first of all, the extent of Christ's lordship. Turn, if you would, to Philippians 2, verse 9 which says, for this reason also, God highly exalted him. For what reason? Well, to answer that, we need to know what was said just immediately previously. In Philippians 2, beginning with verse 8, we read, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. God the Father highly exalted Jesus, God the Son, because he lived a completely righteous life and obediently defeated sin and death. Satisfying God's wrath against sin and purchasing our redemption out of sin into eternal life with him. Jesus accomplished what we could not. At the beginning of his, what's, come to be called his high priestly prayer in John 17. We read, Jesus, lifting up his eyes to heaven, said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then in Matthew 28, 18, After his resurrection, but before his ascension into heaven, we read that Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So when verse nine says that the father highly exalted him, that's a term that's used only this once in the New Testament. And it means to exalt to the highest rank, the highest power, and suggests even this is more highly exalted than was the case before the incarnation. Ephesians 1 speaks of this in verses 19 forward when it says, the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. 1 Peter 3 Verses twenty one, twenty two says, "Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him, since Jesus is highly exalted, there is no authority, there is no glory above that of the Lord Jesus Christ." Notice that these verses make it clear that this was accomplished in the past. So it's true in the present, not just in the future. He is Lord. Verse 9 continues when it says, And bestowed on him the name which is above every name. His name refers to his supreme authority conferred on him when he was highly exalted. It's much like how David used the term in 1 Samuel 17, 45, when he was confronting Goliath. David said to him, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. He was coming in under the authority and with the power of God Almighty. Hebrews 1, 3-4 says, Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus Christ has a name that is above every name, Lord. And Jesus has supreme authority. Verse 10 tells us, so that at the name of Jesus, that the actual name of Jesus in the Hebrew is the word Yehoshua, which means the Lord is salvation, often translated Joshua. In the Greek, that term is Jesus. A common name, in fact, uh, we hear of a Jesus justice in Colossians 4.11. The name Jesus does have significance. It was given to both Mary and Joseph by the angel Gabriel before he was born. You remember in Matthew one twenty one, Gabriel told Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And in Luke 1:30, Gabriel said to Mary, "Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever." And his kingdom will have no end. The name Jesus means salvation. And he alone has purchased our salvation. Acts 2.21 says, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Later in Acts 4.12, we read, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 10 continues by saying, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. To bow, the knee means to humble yourself as you submit to the rule and authority of the one you're bowing to. Now, as I read it here from the New American Standard, the 1995 version, it says, every knee will bow. If you have a different version, a different translation of the scriptures, you may have a different rendering there. And the reason may be, in fact, I'm sure it is, because in the original Greek, that will bow is in the subjunctive mood. According to Thayer's Greek-English lexicon, the subjunctive mood is the mood of possibility and potentiality. The action described may or may not occur depending upon the circumstances. And so in other translations, including the original New American Standard and the more recent ESV and, of course, the King James as well, They translate it that every knee should bow to translate more accurately the subjunctive mood. But does that mean that everyone should bow their knee, but not necessarily everyone will? Well, there are three reasons I would give that we should not conclude that. One is that Paul is quoting here from the Old Testament Isaiah forty five twenty three, and that verse in the Old Testament is in the imperfect mood, meaning it will happen in the future. It reads, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and I will not and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Secondly, that passage from Isaiah 45 is also quoted in the New Testament in Romans 14:11. And there it uses the indicative mood, like the verse in Isaiah also has. It says, "For it is written, "As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God." And third, We are given a glimpse of the fulfillment of this in the book of Revelation. And it includes everyone. Revelation 5.13. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So if everyone will one day acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, then why would Paul use the subjunctive mood here in Philippians? Well, unlike in Isaiah and Romans, where this universal acknowledgement of God's authority and judgment are merely stated as fact, yet to be fulfilled, here in Philippians, Paul is saying that this applies specifically to Jesus Christ, not just to God the Father, for the reasons that he explained in the preceding verses. In other words, his humble obedience to the will of the Father, culminating in his sacrificial death on our behalf. So, in other words, Jesus' completed work of redemption made it possible for him to be exalted by the Father, in verse 9, and worshiped by all creation, in verses 10 and 11. It's not that these things might happen, but they would not have happened had it not been for his obedience to the point of death. This use of the subjunctive mood is found elsewhere in the New Testament in similar grammar. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10, in The NASB 95 version says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining a salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. That's in the subjunctive mood there. We will live together with him. And so the King James, the original NASB and the ESV say, that we should live with him or that we may live together with him or so that we might live with him but in this passage just as in philippians 2 paul links the future certainty our life together with christ with the historical fact that made it possible which is his death on our behalf the subjunctive mood is used not because the future event possibly might not happen but because the thing that made it possible was specifically cited. And it says, so that. Another example of that is Colossians 1.18. He, Jesus, is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Well, continuing in verse 10, you might be wondering which knees will bow to Jesus. And it says of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Those who are in heaven includes angels, the spirits of those who uh, have died. um, And the fact that the angels will worship Christ is evidence of his deity. Those on earth, of course, refers to those who uh, are alive now or maybe more specifically were alive at the time this was written. Those under the earth is a compound word in the Greek used, again, just this once in all of the New Testament. But it refers to all others who have died. So as the passage in Revelation, which we read earlier, indicates, This list includes all people who ever lived, plus angels and demons, everyone. It includes both the righteous and the unrighteous. It includes those who followed Christ and those who rebelled against him. It includes includes those who worshipped Christ and those who never heard of him. Christians, Jews, Muslims. Buddhists, Mormons, pagans, even atheists, Julius Caesar, Nero, Alexander the Great, Hitler, Stalin, Saddam Hussein, Muhammad, you and me, everyone. There will be no exception. Everyone who has ever lived will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who submitted to him in this life will do so joyfully when they meet him in his glory. Those who did not submit to him in this life will do so full of regret when it is too late, just prior to their eternal damnation. But it doesn't stop with bowing the knee. Verse 11 continues. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. To confess means to agree. To say the same thing about. It doesn't necessarily imply a saving knowledge of Christ. If their condition if their confession comes to late after they die for romans 9 uh, romans 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth jesus as lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved notice that verse 11 here says that jesus christ is Lord, not that he will be Lord or that we need to make him Lord. He is Lord. Acts 2.36 says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And in 1 Corinthians 8.6 we read, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. And we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Jesus Christ is Lord. Notice also that this is to the glory of God, the Father. When we confess Jesus as Lord, by our words and by our actions, this glorifies the Father. John 5, for example, says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. But what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? This word Lord in the Greek here means or it comes from the word kurios, which is derived from the word kuros, meaning authority and supremacy. Christ is called Lord no fewer than 747 times in the New Testament. The book of Acts refers to him as Lord 92 times, but it refers to him as Savior only twice. So having seen the extent of Christ's lordship, we now turn to an explanation of Christ's lordship, drawing from the rest of Scripture. The fact that Jesus is Lord means four things about his relationship to us. And therefore, four things about our response to him. Now, perhaps you've already heard me teach this on one or more occasions, but in, case, uh, in any case, I hope that uh, this will help you to remember that the Lordship of Christ can be summarized with the acrostic L-O-R-D, Lord. Now, if you don't normally take notes during the sermon, Be sure to write this down. It's going to be on your final exam. (laughs) Because Jesus is Lord, he is first our leader. L is for leader. Meaning he's our teacher, our example, our mentor. You recall that The 23rd Psalm begins by saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Isaiah 40, 11 says, Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Well, if he is our leader, what's our responsibility? To follow him, right? In John 10, Christ said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door of the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens And the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and what? Leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and his sheep follow them because they know his voice. And then later he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In Matthew 10, 38, Jesus said, And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. In Luke 9, 57 and following, we see this account where they were going along the road and someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, "Follow me." But he said, "Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father." But Jesus said to him, "Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God." Another also said, "I will follow you, Lord. But per- permit first me, first permit me to say goodbye." to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Likewise, in 1 Peter 2, verse 21, we read, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. And even in our own passage in Philippians 2.5, it says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So Christians are often referred to as followers of Christ, but followers don't just go where they wish, calling on their leader only when they get lost or stuck or whatever question is are you following the Lord Jesus or are you like the ones who said Lord me first which is a contradiction of terms Lord me first well not only is he our leader but because Jesus is Lord he is second our owner O is for owner our master. In Acts 20, verse 28, Paul brought to him the the elders of the church of Ephesus and warned them, saying, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Revelations 5, 9 says, And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In 2 Peter 2, verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. And then Galatians 5.24, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Many Christians think uh, think of Jesus as their big brother or a super friend. And while those analogies may hold some truth and some benefit, the truth that most of us lose sight of is that the Lord Jesus Christ owns us. And that if we're truly Christians, we're his slaves. He is our master. He is our owner. Well, if he is our owner, we are his slaves, what should we do? We should serve him rather than serving ourselves. Romans six sixteen and following says, Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slave for obedience, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you realize that you're a slave? You and I are either slaves of sin or slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other category. Which are you serving? Are you characterized by serving yourself and your sinful desires, lusts, and ambitions? If so, then sin is master over you. And the Bible describes that condition as spiritual death. Rebellion against God, our master. Although Christians are not perfect, make no mistake, you cannot have it both ways. You can't secretly serve sin while outwardly appearing to serve Christ. The issue here, of course, is not just what you do at church and for church. The question is, who are you serving throughout the week, moment by moment? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. When you are a slave, you have no rights. Your sole purpose is to advance the interests of your master, your owner. A faithful slave doesn't ask, What's in this for me? but rather, How can I benefit my master? A good example of that would be the way Joseph served Potiphar. And Potiphar's uh, activities flourished under the servanthood of Joseph. Another example is uh, the parable of the miners, uh, minas, that Jesus told and Pastor Gabe read from, earlier in Luke 19, where some of them were good slaves and advanced the interest of the owner by multiplying the resources under their care, and some were not. Galatians 1.10 says, For am I now speaking, seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul used that term, bondservant. It's really the same Greek word for slave, doulos, that we read in Romans 6. In addition to Paul, James, Peter, Jude, and John all all refer to themselves as slaves of Christ in the New Testament. What or who... Is your master sin or the Lord Jesus Christ? Whose interests are you seeking to advance? Yours or the Lord Jesus Christ? He is our owner. So because Jesus is Lord and he is our leader, and because he is Lord, he is our owner, and third, he is also our ruler. R is for ruler, He's our king, our sovereign, our judge. Even in our passage here this morning, Philippians 2.9, for this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, referring to his supreme authority. Ephesians 1.18 and following puts it this way. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all authority and rule and power and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Revelation 1.5 says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, he who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Later in Revelation 11.15, verse 15, I'm sorry, Revelation 11.15, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And then finally in Revelation 19.16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, because Jesus is our ruler, what should our response be? To obey him, right? John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 1 John 2, 3 through 5, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Hebrews 5, 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And 1 Peter 1 begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to, to do what? To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Since Jesus is Lord, he has all authority. And therefore, he deserves and requires complete obedience. There is no biblical support for the popular notion that we can embrace Jesus as Savior without obeying him as Lord. Maybe I should repeat that. There is no biblical support for the popular notion that we can embrace Jesus as Savior without obeying him as Lord. Obedience to the Lord Jesus is not an option for the true Christian and although it begins with a transformed heart that wants to please him, it will be increasingly manifested in outward actions of righteousness. God always produces godliness in the lives of those whom he saves from sin and death. Are you characterized by that kind of obedience to the Lord Jesus? Well, because Jesus is Lord, he is our leader, our owner, our ruler. And fourth, he is our deity. Our deity. D is for deity, meaning he is our God. Our own passage here in Philippians 2.6 says, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And of course, the Gospel of John opens by saying in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God and the Word was um, with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 2, 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is head over all authority. John five eighteen. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not... Uh, not because he was breaking the sabbath but also he was calling god his own father making himself equal with god paul attests to this in titus 2:11 where he refers to jesus as our great god and savior christ jesus Likewise, Peter, as he opens his second epistle, refers to him as our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, if the Lord Jesus is God, what should our response be? To worship him, right? Psalm 95, 6 and 7. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are his people the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Psalm two, eleven 11 and 12. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that is Jesus, the Messiah, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. We see examples of his followers worshiping him uh, after the resurrection in Matthew 28, verses 9 and 17, uh, after he ascended into heaven in Luke twenty-four, fifty-two, and following. And we see it in heaven as well in Revelation 15, 3 through 4. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations, Who will not fear, O Lord, and magnify your name? For you are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Do you worship the Lord moment by moment every day? Do you exalt him or exalt yourself? Is your own sinful heart brought low before him as you gain a deeper understanding of his unmatched purity? The questions I've been asking about your response to Jesus' leadership, ownership, rule, and deity lead to my final point today. That is the experience of Christ's lordship. This passage in Philippians 2 underscores two important truths. First, Jesus is Lord. Of all things and of all people, we can't make him Lord. The Father already has. And secondly, even if you don't acknowledge that fact right now, you will by the time you stand before Almighty God. And so there are two possible kinds of people here today. The first would be those who have not yet surrendered to the lordship of Christ and so are in a state of rebellion toward God. A slave of sin instead of a slave of Christ. If that's you, unless you repent of your sin and trust only in the death and resurrection of Christ on your behalf as the only basis for your salvation before our holy creator, You'll reap the consequences of your sin, not only temporarily during this life on earth, but permanently as well, being separated from God and subject to his wrath for all eternity. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul said, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Repentance involves our whole being, our intellect, our emotion, and our will. Intellectually, we need to change our mind about sin. That's rebellion against God. Emotionally, we need to forsake our desire for sin with a contrite and broken spirit. And volitionally, We need to change our will to sin, forsaking sin and turning to God. That's what's described in Romans 10, 9 through 13. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. A good example of that repentance is Zacchaeus, who we read about earlier from uh, the Gospel of Luke. He repented, and we saw evidence of his repentance by his immediate response, wanting to make right, uh, repay those who he had defrauded, and and so on. Um, If you understand that you have never submitted to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but would like to do so, I'd be happy to help you at the conclusion of the service this morning. Please come up and talk to me or one of the other leaders here. But the second kind of person here today pre- previously surrendered to the lordship of Christ over their lives. And if that's you, that should be evident in your life, in your priorities. The fruit of repentance should be obvious. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Salvation has changed your perspective on eternity, but it should also change your perspective on life. You are now a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, his servant, his steward. And he left you on this planet to exercise faithful stewardship over everything he places under your management. And being a good steward isn't just being efficient and thrifty. It means advancing the interest of your owner over your own interests. So are you using your time to advance the interests of Jesus Christ? Or do you advance your interests and squander much of your time? What about your money? Realizing that all of it belongs to the Lord anyway. Do you invest it wisely in things that will advance his purposes? Like the faithful slaves in the parable of the minas? Or is it all about you? Likewise, he has given you a body to serve him in. Are you a good steward of it? Or do you undermine your health and your with indulgences and a lack of self-control? Perhaps even more importantly, are you diligent in your sanctification? Are you taking full advantage of the opportunities here at Hope Bible Church or wherever you are for your growth? Like faithful involvement in the growing disciples classes on Sunday mornings. Or the accountability and relationships of a small group growing together. Are you serving faithful in ministry here at church, discovering and being a good steward of your spiritual gift? Will the Lord be able to say to you at the end, well done, good and faithful slave? Or are you mostly ignoring and even rebelling against your master? Take your obedience and submission to Christ seriously. Don't compare yourself with those around you. Judge yourself based on the commands of Scripture. I urge you now and on an ongoing basis to respond to Jesus as leader, owner, ruler, and deity. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let me conclude by reading 2 Corinthians five fourteen and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. May that be true of us in increasing measure. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that you have died for us to pay the penalty for our sins. We know that you have risen from the dead, demonstrating your victory over sin and death. We love you. May our love for you control us so that we would submit to you, moment by moment, living not for ourselves, but for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.